0: Ladies and gentlemen, Randy here. Before we get to my conversation with Keith Cutton, I want to quickly thank Precision Pro Golf for sponsoring today's episode of the Trap Draw. If you are in the market for a rangefinder, um, I know the holidays coming up, they make excellent gifts. I strongly, strongly urge you to check out precisionprogolf.com. Now on to today's episode.
1: is spot for the trap draw. That. Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper hey. Now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no joke Who me? I emerged
0: from the Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Trap draw. Randy here, uh, riding solo today. My guest is Keith Cutten, golf course architect, and the main reason for our chat today is his book, The Evolution of Golf Course Design, was my selection for the December reading room, and I wanted to talk to Keith not only about the book, but how the book came into being and um Get his thoughts on a on a wide range of subjects around golf course architecture. I will say up front, uh, I am certainly a lay a lay person when it comes to golf course architecture, and I that is one of the things I like most about Keith's book is it's very approachable and digestible for people that you know have a curiosity like myself, but uh, perhaps aren't as well uh, versed. On the nuances of golf course architecture. So without
1: further ado, Keith, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Randy. I'm great. Uh, thanks for having me on today.
0: Yeah, yeah. I appreciate the time. Before we, before we dive into your book, can you give me a quick overview on your career in the golf course architecture industry and maybe what projects you've worked on and, and what projects you're working on now?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, I've been lucky enough to be working with uh, Rod Whitman My primary mentor since about 2007. Um, I started with him at Sagebrush Golf and Country Club or Golf and Sporting Club out in uh, Kilchenna, BC, um, literally on a shovel and a rake. Um, You know, I sort of reached out to him back then when I was just uh, finishing up my undergrad and sort of kept pestering them till they finally offered me a job and said, if you can find your way out here and find a place to live and find a way to work every day, we'll, uh, we'll give you something to do. So uh, I ended up on the bunker crew there and uh, got to work under guys like Jeff Mingay and Philippe Burnett, um who were both talented shapers in their own right, and uh, um, got to watch Rod every day working on a bulldozer sort of out in front of us, shaping the earth, and uh, fell in love with golf architecture right away. Um, I'd always known I'd had a passion for for golf and the idea of golf architecture, but until getting my hands dirty um, and actually, you know, spending a hard summer out there shoveling and raking, uh, I was hooked. I couldn't believe somebody that would pay me to do that. So, um, and it's continued. I've spent the last 12 years uh, sort of following Rod around the country. Uh, I was lucky enough that my third project with Rod was uh, out in a small town of Inverness, Nova Scotia on Cape Breton Island. And uh, that project would turn into Cabot, uh, the first course, the Lynx course. And um, when the recession hit and we were sort of slowed down, um, I think it was the best thing for that project. We sort of had a skeleton crew working out there and we got to take our time. And uh, Rod brought in uh, a very talented man by the name of uh, Dave Axland to help run the project for him so he could spend more time out on the bulldozer. And so I've, I've, I've ended up with some incredible um mentors as a result uh and that relationship with uh rod's relationship with with core crenshaw his i mean his relationship with bill core goes back to before really they were both even in golf course architecture um i've had the privilege of working with uh, a lot of their their guys as well including uh, bill and ben uh how i helped finish the bunkers at uh, cabot cliffs uh, right before the opening so um and i just was out there again this year doing a uh a short course uh, with Rod and Dave uh, that should be open next year. Um, And, you know, in addition to those projects, we've uh, done some other work with Rod. Uh, We're consulting on a few courses right now. Um, We actually finished up last year a renovation of the Algonquin uh, Golf Course in St. Andrews, New Brunswick, which is an old Donald Ross course. Uh, We really brought the Donald Ross field back to that course. Sadly, it had been uh, almost stripped away over uh, um, the last almost century. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a wonderful experience I've had with golf architecture and the ability to work with somebody as talented as Rod.
0: And I was gonna say, I had the pleasure, you and I first met uh, earlier this year up at Cabot, and um, it was the first time I had been there. And I, I, I have to say, being able to meet you and, and spend some time with you, uh, we we shared some beers. Just your insight into not only that course, but all of you know. We we were picking your brain about you know golf course architecture at large. It was it was just so interesting, and I, I know for me made that whole experience so much more rich. So. Um, I, I, I want to thank you for that, and this is certainly a follow-up conversation I've wanted to have since that time. So, uh, before before diving into the book specifically, can I just ask you what what's your history with the game of golf? I, I know you, you mentioned that from kind of a, a young age you, you had this spark for golf and and golf course design. Uh, I, I'm just curious, maybe specifically how that came about, when that came about, and. When you knew it, it was the career that you wanted to do, uh,
1: yeah, I mean the the influences definitely started early. Um, my my grandfather, actually, my dad and my grandfather, were both born in England. Um, my grandfather was uh, like hugely into golf. Uh, he made several trips over to Scotland and Ireland when I was younger, and would come back with scorecards and you know towels. You know, I've still got, I've actually got his golf clubs. Um, and, and a golf towel from St. Andrews when he did the trip. But um, coupled with that, like you know, I was always going over to their house. Uh, the golf would be on the background. I would watch the Masters there and um, Harbor Town and uh, sort of these venues on TV. And my grandfather would always, you know, point out what the better courses were. And it always interested me what he thought the better courses were versus what they were playing normally on the, you know the week weekly uh a weekly schedule um and the other side to it was my my, my father um my father was an environmental scientist for 40 years with the ministry of environment and his hobby was art um, so i was i was always drawing i was always hiking um always camping fishing everything outdoors and um those two sort of influences coupled together uh definitely created obviously who i am but um when I just started getting into golf my grandfather was diagnosed with uh, cancer and it was uh, a terminal type that really he didn't have very long to live and it was it was quite it was something that was quite devastating to me because it was the year that we I, I, I was very competitive with soccer prior to this and it was something that I was putting on the shelf because I was falling in love with golf and we were supposed to do this together and uh, he gifted me his golf clubs um, you know literally on his deathbed, and my way of uh, responding to this loss was to fall headfirst into golf. Uh, it took me many years to sort of realize this connection, and um, but it's you know looking back, you know you have twenty twenty vision. It's quite obvious uh, as, as, as to what I replaced him with, and it was golf. And it, golf continues to be sort of that um, all encompassing presence in my life. And uh, to anybody that's sort of fallen in love with the game, and especially if you're into this crazy world of golf architecture. And traveling around the world and spending time away from your family and friends—I mean, you have to be obsessed with it. So for me, that started fairly early. Um, I, I appreciate you sharing. So I
0: want to turn to the book now, and for folks who haven't seen it or um, perhaps don't know of it, I'm, I'm holding it in my hand, and it is—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a large book. It's—it's it's heavy. It's over—you know—over 350 pages, hardbound. Um, but but what strikes me are a few things. It's it's one. It's a beautiful book. It's full of all kinds of historical photos, uh, beautiful golf course photos, color. Um, it, it's just a ton of kind of visually appealing and stimulating things in here. And then the text for being such a dense book and for covering so much ground, really in the, in the whole history of golf course design. I am amazed by how approachable and digestible the book is. It's, it's broken down into really two parts. Part one is the evolution of golf course design. And you, you, about every decade is its own chapter. And so it starts really at, at the beginning, uh, the, the real roots of the game, and comes all the way up to present. And then the second part of the book is uh, individual profiles of people. And this is where, you know, you break down the the history and the influences of individual architects, authors, and visionaries around the game of golf. And um, it's just, I... (laughs) When I was writing something up for our website, I, I said, you know I, I hope this doesn't come across as kind of a backhanded compliment, but it's just such a good coffee table book. It's something that uh, you know as you, you just would love it's it's laying around my living room. Uh, when I'm sitting on the couch watching golf, it's so easy to pick up and flip through and you can put it down it, it's not it's not a book you have to. Feel like yeah, you get through in a couple reads. It's almost like a reference book that you just can keep coming back to again and again. So it's a very long winded, Keith, but I, I'm I'm curious. I know this book kind of grew out of a college project, so I, I was hoping you could just kind of talk to how this book came into being and give a little backstory for folks um, on on you
1: know what it started as. Yeah, of course, uh, and you know I I appreciate all of that. Um, you know, one of the biggest things I hear is how beautiful the book is. And um, we spent a lot of time, uh, Paul Daly, who's my editor, uh, and I spent a lot of time sort of um, looking at images to complement the text. Um, you know, there's a lot of people I got to thank for that. Um, and a lot of your listeners might actually know who some of them are because of social media. Uh, John Cavalier, who's Links Jim on um, you know Twitter and uh, Instagram. Evan Schiller, Gary Lisbon. Um, Ron Witten, who actually, um, was a major influence on the book because of his, um, the golf course. And then, uh, sequ- uh, after that, the, re- uh, the updated version was the architects of golf, um, which uh, came out, uh, in the late eighties. Um, these were books that I had growing up and were hugely influential on me and, uh, did influence the, the sort of general layout of the book. His book was, um, A brief history up front, and then he profiled every architect that's ever worked in the industry in the back. Um, The only difference is he's, you know, it hadn't been updated uh, for the '80s, '90s. So this this whole new movement of uh, minimalism in golf architecture, which I'm sure we'll get into here shortly, was never really even addressed. So um, my plan was to always go back to school. I did an undergrad in planning and environmental design, which is sort of much broader. And then my plan was to go spend a little time in the industry and go back and do a master's of landscape architecture and really concentrate on golf. And the biggest concentration of that being the mandatory thesis that you have to do. And so the idea of the book came out much later. My my strategy was to use the thesis to answer any questions that I had remaining from my sort of lifelong study of golf architecture. I, you know, I, cultivated books over you know 10 15 years had read everything that anybody of consequence uh recommends that you read if you want to get into golf architecture i had all the golf architecture magazines you know i read everything cover to cover you know at least twice um and i i had i still had questions everything i looked at um was either a history of a golf specific club a history of an architect and their body of work, so their portfolio and maybe some of their inspirations, Uh, and then some golf architecture 101 books like uh, The Anatomy of a Golf Course or Grounds for Golf, which had brief histories, but they really didn't tell you why certain uh, eras of golf architecture happened, so why courses from the golden age of golf course design look completely different than the 50s, 60s, and 70s and 80s. Uh, and then why are we, why is the current minimalist movement that we're hearing so much about now? Why is, why are we doing what we're doing as opposed to what we've been doing the previous years? And it just, it was frustrating to me because nobody had really done enough research to, to paint the whole story. You had to read, you know, 50, 60 books to get a, a slight understanding of it, but really there was major holes in the whole narrative. So um, I really, that's where the where the idea of the thesis came from, was really go decade by decade, um, make g- massive timelines of anything that could have affected golf history, and then start tying all these little threads together. Um, the profiles that are in the back of the book are really a fraction of the actual profiles I made for the thesis and sort of summarized everybody's individual works and who uh, had influenced them and how they'd influenced other people. and. Uh, looked at their major projects, and um, you know, it, it 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 sort of all coalesced into this massive thesis um, that was one of the largest ever submitted <laughs> at the University of Guelph. Um, and I, I remember my um, the the panel that was judging my my thesis presentation and the actual document at the end, uh, saying this was more of a, a doctor's level thesis submission than a master's level and. Uh, really all that was was just me uh, doing what I always do and just getting swept up into golf architecture and producing something that, you know, I had a passion for. Um, but as you said, the book is digestible. and I think that really comes from this process of me having to – I had all this knowledge and, and all, I did all this research, but I was then having to present it to a, uh, a group of landscape architects who really knew nothing about golf that were then determining whether or not I achieved my master's. So the thesis itself, the first draft really of the book had to be digestible, it had to be accessible. Uh, it had to relate the points that I was uh, trying to make. And it, really the the idea of the book came almost right at the end. A friend of mine, George Waters, um, who actually is a former doke intern, uh, now works with the USGA, uh, green section a uh, very smart man he um he did a thesis and then turned that into the book sand and golf uh which is wonderful by the way and he 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 was he released that right as I'm finishing my my thesis so I look at that and go well if he can do it I can and you know I just I I sort of passed around to a few people I trusted uh floated them what I was doing as my research topic, and most of them just said, "If it's, if it's, uh, if it's half of what you're telling us, it is." People need to read this. So, uh, okay. <laughs> and, and the final, the final straw was me uh, having enough faith to send it to um, like Bill Coor and uh, Paul Daly, of course, who eventually became my editor and publisher, um, and them having faith in it. You know, Paul taking a year off from uh, his own work at producing, you know, uh, his own books and um, having enough faith in what i was doing to jump fully on board
0: without further ado i i I want to dive into the book um i I think one of the things that struck me very early and actually is in the preface to to the book you draw an analogy between the work charles darwin did and his theory of evolution and you compare that to what's happened in golf course design and I, i was just Hoping you could kind of explain this analogy, and 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 I think it really sets the stage then for you know our, our conversation here.
1: Yeah, and I think it's the interest, the most interesting thing about that actual um, preface is the way that that uh, explanation actually came about. I had a colleague um, who questioned the name of the book, and if if I know you've read the Spirit of St. Andrews because it was profiled on. You know the reading room earlier. Uh, Yeah, Um, in that book, the first chapter is called "The Evolution of Golf," Um, and knowing that, I looked at what it is. It's a history. It explains what had happened before Mackenzie wrote that, and how he sort of it lays the groundwork for his then principles on and ideas on golf architecture. And I looked at that and went, "Well, that's kind of what I'm doing." Uh, It's a great name, and I'll call it "The Evolution of Golf Course Design" and add to it and. Like I said, this colleague questions on questioned me on it, and he said, "Well, isn't it really a history? You know, evolution is kind of confusing, isn't it? The history of golf course design." And I started looking at it. I said, "No." Besides the you know the funny connection between Charles Darwin and um, Bernard Darwin, Bernard Darwin, if you are from the UK, which obviously he was, um, the interesting thing is that uh, evolution, Charles Darwin, looks at creatures as products of their environment. So where that the external influences, weather, food availability, all sorts of things, predators, um, food, um, they all tie back into what this animal eventually acts, looks, you know, everything about them, their characteristics. Um, and looking at a golf architect, the same thing in golf courses, the same thing is, is, is happening. They're products of their environment. And what hadn't been done in other research is looking at that. Looking at the external influences, so um, looking at uh, world history and war, economics, uh, prevailing artistic trends, social movements, and obviously the interpersonal relationships between these designers and, of course, writers and owners, members, and the key projects. And all of this, how how all of this worked together to create this evolution.
0: Yeah, I... I... <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. I, I, I love it. And I, th- I think that that really sets the stage. Um, if we can get into kind of s- some specifics about, you know, certain events and, and how that would shape golf course design. So kind of the beginning of the 20th century is a real turning point um, that, that you, you know, you call out in the book. But before we get there, I, I just wanted to ask you about you know the the 18th and, and 19th centuries. Almost everything up until that time. Uh, you know what? As best you can, I know it's a lot of ground to cover, <laughs> but as best you can, kind of set the stage for what golf course design entailed. You, you know, was it was it a craft, a profession? Uh, you know, who was it being given much thought? I, I'm just I'm trying to set the stage then for you know what happened at, at the start of the 20th century.
1: Yeah, so, um, well, basically starting at the beginning, the original courses that we all, um, you know, that are so heralded and always have been, the Lynx courses of Scotland, are really the the home of golf. And that being, you know, the primary being St. Andrews. And that evolved over time. But those landscapes led to the game. You know, we talk about Lynx golf, and it's still funny that people don't really know what that means. And what that was was the, the land that linked where the people lived and this, and then there was, there was this scrubby coastline that was really not used for anything but grazing sheep. And then usually where um, the docks or the harbor where the boats were. And boats were, before uh, the rail lines really came into Scotland, the major form of transportation was by water. And so most of the communities, the larger communities are around around the coast. And um, this game of golf sort of evolved um, you know on this land that nobody was using that was ideally suited for it. it was well draining. there was natural bunkers and or hazards because of the the, the animal traffic that was out there uh, disturbing vegetation and actually hiding down because of the wind, the natural wind which is still such a, a significant um, um, factor in Lynx Gulf. Um, these animals would hide behind, Natural uh, barriers, so little, little, uh, little hills, and their foot traffic would break up the ground and create the first bunkers, Um, and then slowly people, you know, would refine the game over time. But really, the the game stayed in sort of an isolated state until um, the second half of the eighteen hundreds, in the Victorian era, where railway mania hit Britain, and what happened is the Industrial Revolution allowed for Uh, This massive massive expansion of um, accessibility throughout Britain and really made these links courses around the outside of Scotland accessible from England, and um, you know the the game quickly grew. The English saw this, and another factor of um, the Industrial Revolution was the growth of the middle class. Suddenly, because you know people didn't have to make their own food and make their own clothing, and you know they could actually buy things. The there was actually leisure time for the first time, and golf being the game of uh, royalty, you know, people looked for constantly looking in Britain to elevate their class in society, and golf seemed like a way to connect with people above their social status, and maybe climb that social ladder. So it was it was a very attractive lifestyle, uh, especially given that these cities, because of the Industrial Revolution, you know, specifically London, were getting very polluted, very smoggy. And those with money were seeking the countryside, seeking you know cleaner air um, and this uh, rural way of life. And golf was just so perfectly situated to to um, to suit that uh, those those that new vision of society. And really, what golf architecture was at that point was a means to an end for the golf professionals uh, who in Scotland, you know the the old Tom Morris, the uh, Alan Robertson, the Dunn family, the, the parks, um, what they were making their money off wasn't building golf courses or even, you know, laying them out. It was the, um, production of golf balls, golf clubs, and giving lessons to this growing middle class who was getting into the game. And the best players were deemed most worthy to teach those with money. So obviously, they needed. They wanted to prove themselves the best because that meant more money for themselves. So this is where the idea of match play events came from, and you know, big money matches. And that's really dictated right up to the 1900s what golf was. And the 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 men that did the best at these competitions, Alan Robertson and old Tom Morris, who arguably were you know the, the as a pair never beaten. Um, they got a lot of the work. They started laying out places like Carnoustie early on and um, you know, really started laying the groundwork for what golf architecture would become. But you still have to realize they were uh, greenskeepers, they were golf professionals, club makers, ball makers, first and foremost. And that golf architecture was a secondary product. Um, and really they didn't know how to do, You know, if the site wasn't good, the result wasn't good. At that point, there was no real knowledge of how to create greatness from mediocre products. That didn't happen until closer to 1900, um, when obviously over time, um, the ability and and methods of construction evolved. Um, But right up right from the 1880s, 1890s, when golf was really, really popular in England, um, what was happening is these um, these. very uh, influential professionals would come to England, like the Tom Dunhams of the world, um, would lay out courses, but nobody would know how to construct them. So, what they do is hire the same contractors, the same builders, the same earth, you know, the, the same uh, builders of these luxury rural estates for the rich who are doing these landscape layouts that were Victorian in style. And if anybody knows Victorian architecture or landscape design, it's very geometric, so the results in in and around England were looked like this style because it suited the public's opinion on what um, what nature should be what nature should look like if it was styled and designed by man. So it was very geometric with crop bunkers and square greens, um, square fairways, and all these bunkers are lined up at mathematical distances um, as force carries for people to almost hurt like jump over, um, like a horse would, um, and this, this this style lasted right up until almost 1900, where the entire industry was changed.
0: I, I want to get into that one figure from from your book that I, I, and again, this is maybe where this this is exposing you know my my lack of knowledge, but I, I thought he was really. Interesting, and I, I was hoping you could talk about
1: the influence that Horace Hutchinson had. Yeah, Horace Hutchinson was immensely influential, like like I was talking about. Right at this time frame where the Industrial Revolution was having a massive impact on, on Britain, this style of architecture, if it wasn't a great site, was Victorian in nature. Um, there, was, there was a counter-movement in golf in, – in society in Britain, not just golf, uh, called the Arts and Crafts Movement. And what that was, was it was uh, counterculture against the effects of the Industrial Revolution. So mass-produced items, the smog, the dirt, the, the, the overcrowding of cities. And what it was is a return to was sort of handmade, purpose-built uh, creations, whether that be art or fabrics or even building architecture. Um, it, it's, it, it, really permeated society and right in this, in this, this was all happening right in and around London, just outside sort of the Oxford the Heathland area was the sort of the heart of the arts and crafts movement. And it just so happened, that's where golf would change, uh, forever. And one of the key people for this was Horace Hutchinson. He was the, um, the first Englishman to win the British amateur championship, uh, for golf. Uh, which really brought him, uh, and obviously at that time England was still um, very much the center of Britain, and to have an Englishman beat the Scots at their own game was big for the first time, so he was and he was an educated man, so he went to Oxford and was able to write about these things he was learning in golf um, the The previous professionals, like old Tom. Tom Dunn, Alan Robertson—they—they they were not educated men. They were not able to convey to the general public what they were learning uh, in this craft on golf architecture. Even though uh, old Tom Morris was a huge influence on a lot of these uh, these later architects, including Hutchinson. Um, but most of the communication was verbal. So getting that to the masses is really where Hutchinson comes comes in and makes a big difference. He's the first editor of a new magazine, a periodical, called Country Life Magazine in Britain. And what this is, is, as I was talking about, it looks at the country life. What is the middle class and the upper class looking at? It's looking to escape the, the effects of the Industrial Revolution on the big cities. And the country is a new way of life. So Country Life Magazine is at the heart of this movement. And Hutchinson is, you know, steering the wheel when it comes to golf. And right after starting this magazine, um, he starts bringing in his friends. And who are they? Um, he actually helped found the Oxford, in Oxford and Cambridge Golfing Society. Um, and his friends included John Lowe, Arthur Croom, Harry Colt, and Bernard Darwin. And if you look at what, these, what the effects, especially Lowe, Colt, and Darwin had on golf architecture uh, before World War I, it was immense. And Hutchinson was the one that was, you know, literally hanging them the microphone, um, the loudspeaker to talk to the masses and it, it changed golf. And the interesting thing is there was right up until my research, there was a big question over, um, what the connecting factor was between what moved golf architecture from Victorian design to this sort of post-World War one, um, era the heathlands architecture style which some people were already saying was you know it it, it, there's got to be a connection to the arts and crafts movement but nobody could connect it and what it was was in 1890 hutchinson left uh golf for a year he thought he'd accomplished everything in it this is after winning you know the amateur uh championship and starting to do some layouts of his own and having produced the first um first writings on golf architecture, he thought he sort of accomplished it all. So um, being a socialite, um, one of the main things they did, if you had money, is um, show people how, how many uh, things you were accomplished in. So what did he do next? He went into art. And he actually obviously was uh, influential enough that he uh, got to be mentored by the legendary George Frederick Watts, um, who if if anybody knows art, he was a major influence on the arts and crafts movement. He's not per se an arts and crafts artist, but almost half of the arts and crafts um, staples, the main artists in that movement, uh, credit him in some way or another, lived with him or um, uh, apprenticed underneath him or were guided by him in some manner um, in art. And Hutchinson studied with him for a year and not by coincidence, after that year, he goes to France, uh, studies golf in Europe, and comes back with another book and signs on with Country Life magazine and goes on to change, change golf architecture. And uh, it's, it's one of those things that was just sort of overlooked. And if you don't, if you don't study, the funny thing is the, the way I made this connection was a book that Hutchison wrote that had nothing to do with golf. It's called Portraits of the 80s, and it talks about these relationships he had with George Frederick Watts and the artists of the arts and crafts movement. And, you know, if you're into history, I like to know why things happen. If I travel to Europe and I'm looking at the architecture, I'd like to know, you know, what led to this. And it just it, it blew me away that um, that sort of study hadn't been done in golf architecture and how interesting these threads are and they're everywhere in the book, you know. If you if you're a member of a Donald Ross course, his influence are there. You can figure out where your course fits into his evolution as an artist and why maybe your course looks different than Pinehurst where he started in, and then even why uh, Pinehurst doesn't look how it did when it first opened. Um, you know, and that all stems back to this sort of early uh, early era of golf architecture where it was just sort of blossoming into an art form.
0: Yeah, that's, I feel, Keith, I feel like I should be, like, I feel like I'm back in school and I, I just want to be taking notes while, you, while you're talking.
1: Well, <laughs> that's, this is, that's what the this for. is awesome. Yeah, I was going to say, this is,
0: the, you know, it's luckily it's all in the book. Um, what, talk to me about what, one thing you didn't mention, and I know it's it's pivotal, what happened at uh, Sunningdale and Huntercombe, those two courses yeah. uh, just outside of London. Can, can you talk about why why they're important?
1: yeah so so you've got hutchinson sort of giving this uh standing on the soapbox um preaching the new vision for golf and very much what the arts and crafts movement was is fitting things into nature so he's doing this right at the turn of the you know the 20th century right in 1900 and it's no coincidence that in 1901 Two courses open in the Heathlands. So again, the center of this arts and crafts movement area. But in in the one thing that was different was these sand these sites were sandy. And so more reminiscent of the Lynx courses. So people were these these architects were specifically looking for sites that were ideal for golf. And that was very different than what was happening closer to London. So Sunningdale and Huntercombe Open, designed by Willie Park Jr. Uh, they still have a Victorian style. They're still sort of crop bunker, steep face kind of look. But what where they differ completely is the scale. Large rolling greens, bold contour, contouring, and the bunkers aren't placed at set distances. They're sort of strategically placed into upslopes, much more like we'd have now with modern architecture. Um, and at that same year, 1901, uh, the other piece of the puzzle comes together. John Lowe at Woking works with members Stuart Patton and the greenkeeper, um, Old Martin is what he was called, uh, and they work to revise the club's fourth hole. Now, what they did is not just modify it because they, you know, there's something wrong. What they did is took a, a relatively Victorian hole, uh, course. It's a, it's a Tom Dunn layout, and what they did was look to the old course, the 16th hole, Um, they implemented a principles no-stop bunkers, two bunkers in the center of the fairway. There's out-of-bounds to the right. Um, So the fairway, actually, the bunkers are just offset slightly more to the right than the left, so pinching the right side of the fairway for the tee shot. And the green has a left-side bunker um, and slopes toward the hazards, toward the out-of-bounds on the right. So it's perched up against the bunker on the left and tilted outwards. So the strategy there, based on the 16th hole at the old course, is that you play toward the out of bounds, play into this pinched area so that the green opens up for you. So you have the best shot. You have all the freedom in the world to go left and play it safe, but you're going to be in, you know you're going to be impacted by the shot into the green. And this this concept of using strategy and placing bunkers. To uh to sort of influence and play and make a golfer think as to what they're supposed to be doing and what the smart shot is and how that of course ties back into their skill set um, change golf so you've got this um this more natural this more uh, bold and uh, rugged aesthetic and uh, sights that are finally chose because of the material underneath coupled with somebody else who's doing. Uh, strategic design and it's just this is 1901 and it's just about to come together as uh, in in golf architecture as sort of a, the the birth of the golden age hey
0: everybody randy real quick i want to jump in here and quickly thank precision pro golf for sponsoring today's episode of the trap draw question for you what's the one item in your bag that you're going to use the most during a round it's not your putter it's not your favorite iron It's your range finder. All golfers need a range finder that they can trust to know the precise distance to their target for nearly every shot, whether you're on the tee box or in the fairway. And good news, Precision Pro Golf range finders, they've extended some Black Friday sales, so make sure you get over to precisionprogolf.com. And when you are there, use the promo code NOLAYINGUP, all caps, NOLAYINGUP, and you'll receive $10 off your purchase. What I really like about Precision Pro Golf rangefinders, one, they have a free battery replacement service for the life of your rangefinder. So you're not only buying a rangefinder, you're signing up for lifetime service, which is great. And the second thing I really like, they're they're very easy to use. Pick it up real quick, bang, zap it, and it's back in your bag and you're ready to play. So very convenient, very quick, uh, sleek design. Go to precisionprogolf.com use coupon code no laying up and uh, grab yourself a range finder they make they make perfect holiday gifts. So, swing with confidence, hit more greens, precision pro golf precisionprogolf.com. Thank you to them and now back to my interview with Keith. You know, for for a term that I think most golfers are you know, it, it's a pretty ubiquitous term, the, oh, the golden age of golf course design. Can, can you talk about maybe why that is and what, what specifically made it the, the Golden Age?
1: Yeah, I mean, most, most people consider the Golden Age to be uh, um, mainly U.S.-North American-based, and the, it's, it's the interwar period. Now, what? so between world War, world War I and World War II, and it's the high point of golf architecture production, uh, bar none in North America, but also throughout most of the world.
0: And yeah. I think to to sorry to to cut you off though, and and I apologize if you were getting there. But one thing that really uh, was hammered home reading the book was was why it occurred in America was because yeah. of such the, the heavy losses that obviously Britain uh, yeah. took during World War One. Yeah, I, I thought that was just fast, you know, really fascinating to think about.
1: Yeah, and I mean, what a lot of the history, you know, and there's some marvelous books out there. Jeff Shackleford's um, the Golden Age of Golf Course Design is a wonderful book on this era. But one of the things I found is that there's no reference to where, where all these guys came from and why they came to America. Half of them were British. Um, and it's because that and why the architecture was so good. and it, it didn't just come out of anywhere. What's not recognized is that this whole movement, the Golden Age of Golf Course Design, started in the UK and started just after and started in the Heathlands. So after after 1901, with the, with these two cor- courses, um, Harry Colt, again going back to the influence of Hutchison and bringing the people into golf um, that are not just intellects but very very skilled at um, sort of bringing these elements together. And Harry Colt was probably the biggest of the bunch. Uh, he renovated Willie Parks um, Sunningdale and. The natural aesthetic that he brought to that and the increase of the strategic elements in that design really put a, put a spotlight on the Heathlands of England as the sort of cradle of golf architecture. You had the emergence of, as I said, Willie Park, and he started to do fabulous work, um, obviously learning from Colt and Lowe and, and, and Hutchison. Herbert Fowler's another name. Uh, John Abercrombie all these guys were doing they were merging this more natural aesthetic so Tying their golf into the site and making their hand as a designer essentially disappear And they were blending that with strategic design and using the great holes of you know uh, Lynx golf as sort of inspiration um, To determine what great what what strategy was and how that made golf interesting now there's sort of a huge wave in, in Britain before World War I, and it comes to a, an abrupt halt at World War I. And nobody in the world is hit harder, really, uh, in World War I than Britain. The people, the economy are just devastated. Uh, it, and it really leads to the sort of breaking up of the British Empire following World War I. Like it's, it's, that, it's that big that they start having to pull themselves uh, back together. So the work in, in Britain following World War I is non-existent. There's some work repairing um, Britain in the courses and really Harry Colt is the, is the primary example of who's doing that because he is the most notable. But um, there's work in you know across the Atlantic in the New World, the Land of Opportunity, the US, Canada. And um, a lot of these architects follow actually Harry Colt's lead who had gone um, to the U.S. and and Canada prior to World War I and laid out courses like Pine Valley and then came to Canada and laid out Toronto Golf Club and then Hamilton Golf Club. And the influence there are incredible as well. But um, what happens in Britain is there's no work. So everybody follows the money. They all come to North America and They've had, you know, 15 years of expanding their knowledge on what great golf architecture is, and the U.S. reaps all the benefits. You know, there's uh, you couple that to the roaring 20s and the amount of money that's there to allow these artists to, you know, implement any vision they see in their mind, it's incredible. Um, and the results are... Um, you know Augusta National Cypress Point and the list just goes you know that's just McKenzie and the list just goes on and on and on
0: it, is the the fixed endpoint then the the great depression and then going into world war 2 and it is does that does that become more of a dark period then for golf course design
1: uh, the depression definitely isn't there's still wonderful examples of because of the public stimulus uh, funding that went into trying to keep uh, to give people work, you know, the Beth Page Blacks of the World, um, with Tillinghass, Um there and there's there's numerous other examples, you know, uh the prime example of sort of the end of that era is arguably one of the best courses, Prairie Dunes. Uh a Perry Maxwell layout. Um you know, he spent and it was only nine holes when it first opened because the literally the war sort of cut it off, his ability to finish. Um but you know, in, up here in Canada, uh, Stanley Thompson is. You know, I'm on the board of directors for the Stanley Thompson Society, so any chance I get, I'll, I'll voice the, uh, I'll voice praise for him. Uh, yeah. but um, <laughs> he's our Mackenzie. He's our Donald Ross. His layouts like Banff and Jasper um, are just incredible. You know, they're top 100 in the world easily. Um, but at the end of his career, uh, or at right prior, not at the end of his career, right prior to um world war one during the great depression he's finishing what arguably is his masterpiece um highlands links and if you're if you visit cabot make the trail up the you know make the drive up the cabot trail and visit highlands it's in our national it's in one of our national parks and um it's incredible he you know he, there was there was a rule or there's basically the um suggest strong suggestion given uh to make the project last as long as possible And the same thing goes with prairie dunes, um, a lot more handwork, a lot more attention to detail went on and the, the, the pace of the project was slowed down to make the work last and the golf course reaped all the benefits because the designer, the one with the most talent is on site for a lot of time and just getting all the details, right. So, you know, most people say the culmination of the golden age is during the great depression. Um, what, sadly, what, um, sort of put an end to it was world war one. Um, you know, slowly during the great depression, people are leaving golf. They're having, you know, there's no money for it. They're selling their clubs if, if they're even worth anything. Uh, there's no money for memberships and, you know, in clubs and world war two, just puts a complete end to that. You know, there's, um, people end up being killed. Families are ripped apart. Um, you know, there's there's scrap and metal drives, so people are actually giving their golf clubs away to support the war. You know, that's something that's never really talked about. So the, the industry is just decimated. And the other thing is that there's there's a strong break in the knowledge in the progress, what had been happening for the progress in the field of golf course architecture. As I said, golf, golf as a profession really started in the early 1900s. And a lot of the practitioners, you know, the Colts, the McKenzie's, the Maxwell's, they wouldn't survive, Perry Maxwell did, uh, but he would still work sort of in his isolated region. But a lot of these uh, guys, you know, didn't survive their careers. Either they didn't or their careers didn't survive World War II. And what that that meant was there was a complete changing of the guard, not just for golf, but also society-led. To that, there was so much um, just disparity for the Great Depression and World War II. People weren't weren't like they were previously. They weren't fond of looking back at the past and embracing history. There was very much a the modernist movement had swept society, and everybody was looking to the future, whether that be highways, cars, suburbia, you know, space exploration. Um, the entire focus of society was different and architecture reflected that the only uh sort of architect practicing in the u.s um that was really left standing and led the charge of this new modernist movement was robert trent jones senior somebody who had worked with stanley thompson and knew alistair mckenzie and but just you know wasn't as educated in that era because there wasn't a lot, a lot of work in the depression when these relationships were going on. He was still kind of doing his own thing. And so post World War II, he uses all this fame and even steals some credit for Stanley Thompson's some of his projects including Banff which he had nothing to do with. And, you know, and then sort of redirected golf for the next 30, 40, 50 years.
0: So outside of golf, in in my mind, at least, uh, it's 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 somewhat of, of a pejorative phrase to say, oh, you know, that was that was designed in the 70s or, you know, that's 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 very 70s. You know, whether it be fashion or general architecture, I, I feel like kind of that the, the immediate thought of like something coming about you know, from the seventies is just, it, it's not great. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are, if you can kind of, you know, tie golf, golf course design, um, what it kind of went through in the seventies and then, you know, kind of bringing it as much up to modern day as possible, how, how it's changed more recently and more at present.
1: Yeah. I mean, the seventies the is, you know, late sixties into the the 70s is sort of the culmination of this modernist movement. It's been slowly building since the end of World War II, um, and modernism is sort of this, um, not eradication of nature, but it's really the the sort of cleanness of lines, the the visual impact of man. So you got concrete and sharp lines, and uh, it permeates art and all sorts of things, every, every facet of society, really. And we see that in our golf courses, the the sort of um, the clarity of form is a, a a very strong principle in modernism, and that's something that permeates golf. the The idea that you hit you know the 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 fairway is pinched at the landing area, where you're exactly where you want to be, and the fairway is tight, but the lines are crisp, um, and everything's visible. There's nothing hidden. There's no. You know, Lynx golf is gone. There's no blind tee shots or punch bowl greens or, you know, any of this quirkiness uh, that makes makes the the oldest courses so special. Um, that's gone in golf. Um, and it's because well, that's what society wants, and that's what they're paying architects to do, and that's what golf architects are doing. Um, and we see that in the late 60s and 70s. What we also see – it's just like the arts and crafts movement was a um, sort of a counterculture to the industrial revolution. What we see is the environmental movement of the '70s come out in a way in a re- in a reaction to modernism. And what we see on how this affects golf is just the planting of golf courses. You know, single line trees going up the middle of all these fairways, and some of them, you know, they're just being overplanted. And the funny thing is, thousands of trees are going in, and they're not. They're not beautiful hardwoods. They're not, you know, I'm a landscape architect. My dad was an environmental scientist. I said, I love trees. I love hiking in the woods. But for golf, it's not good, especially on an old tight golf course. Um, it just made everything tighter. It made, um, you know, it made the shots more difficult. And difficult is not something that should go hand in hand with golf architecture. The, the you know, guys like Mackenzie Colt always talked about courses being, Um, challenging for the best but allowing for the beginner and modernism was kind of the opposite it was just let's make everything tighter and longer (laughs) and more difficult for the best but we'll forget the rest and you know not to sound too cheesy with with life but it, it really is like those things come out in the book and it's it's understanding the social factors and why these things are happening um and it, it's it's obvious you know and it 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 hurt golf architecture you know not to say there was not great courses there's always every decades got its standouts but the funny thing is is there was more courses built in the 60s 70s and 80s and early 90s still trickling you know with those influences more courses built during that time frame than any other point in history so when we look especially in north america um so when we look at the golf landscape and we, you know, when, when this recession recently happened and people are talking about all these courses closing and they're like, Oh no, this is the end of golf. I look at it and just went, no, look at the, look at the era that these courses were built in society's just waking up and the, you know, we're, we're, we're weeding out the weak. That's all it was. The The worst efforts are getting, you know, it's a thinning of the herd. Uh, and I think it's it's what what we've gone through since uh, the late eighties is sort of a rebirth. Um, there's this whole minimalist movement that's now happening in golf architecture, and we're returning to some of those golden age ideas.
0: And for for folks that aren't or maybe not aware, I, I've it, it seems like Pete Dye is hugely instrumental in in this return. Is that fair to say? Just reading your book, it it seems like, uh, you know, his his tree of folks that, you know, kind of worked for him and have gone on to, you know, work in the business. It it seems like a lot of roads lead back to to Pete Dye.
1: Definitely. And especially those that worked for him in his early years, Um, because what he was doing is Robert. His main competition was Robert Trent Jones. And, you know. Whereas everybody else was copying Jones, like literally just duplicating his work and thinking they're going to get noticed, basically picking up his scraps, um, Pete went a different direction. You know, um, he had uh, spent a lot of time at Pinehurst. He spent a lot of time on Mackenzie Maxwell courses. He purposely went over and did a study of uh, Scottish and Irish and English golf. And sort of saw the subtleties and the variety of features that were over there. You know, contour. You know, not grading flat fairways, but using contour to affect the golf ball. Um, he brought that back to to North America in the uh, in the specifically in the '70s and '80s, and sort of started changing golf golf architecture and golf. Um, You know, when Harbortown opened and um, was, you know, that's sort of some of the first events there, um, Arnold Palmer, I believe, won the the first event. Um, It it brought a spotlight to what Pete was doing. Um, And the other major thing of note is that he was not practicing golf architecture the way everybody else was. The way they were sitting in offices drawing up plans and handing them to a contractor who was kind of doing the same thing over and over if it was working for them. Uh, And whatever got them in and out of a project fast because that's how they make money. Pete didn't do that. He showed up, he ran the bulldozer himself, and he wouldn't get off the bulldozer until he liked what he saw. And that was reminiscent of what was going on sort of pre-World War II, pre-World War I, where the architects... You know, maybe just because of transportation methods, they were spending a lot more time with their jobs. Or they had foremen who were almost basically architects in their own right, uh, but who were doing all the, um, were running the crews and shaping the golf course. And that's what Pete Dye's family tree is all based on. It's this design build tree. You've got Bill Kord, Tom Doak uh jim urbina rod whitman my mentor dave Axelin, you know and the list goes on and on myself uh fall into that tree and i'm very proud of that Um, and i think you know not only did he change uh the face of golf but he faced he he changed the way um we build golf now and the recession funny enough you know you still had up until the recession we still had these two these two differing lines and it really took the recession and a thinning of the herd and a spotlight going on to um, what golf architecture was all about to make us reflect over what had been happening for the last, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And people started, there was rumblings about what minimalist golf was. And, you know, it's not, it's the, funny enough, the funny thing is, you know, Tom Doak um, has made comments about minimalist golf architecture, and it's not about doing nothing. It's about embracing the site and using everything that's there, and highlighting the coolest portions of the site, um, and just barely touching what you have to. And then, if there's areas of the site that to make the rest work need to be touched, that's what you that's what you do. And you can you can build an entire golf hole if it means you don't touch 17 others, and you work with the site and the natural drainage uh, patterns on the site. You know that means it's less to build and it's less to maintain later on because you're not forcing nature's hand. Um, and all these sort of principles, Tom learned from Pete and there's no, and and everybody else did bill core included. And then they, they pass it on to their disciples. And it's, it's no coincidence that Tom named his company Renaissance golf. You know, that's a complete nod of the cap to Pete and what Tom has been doing. Um, and it is this, we're, it, it's, Everybody calls it minimalist golf, but really, this since the uh, since the sort of late eighties, this is it's been a renaissance. It's been a return to these principles of the golden age. I
0: I think this is I, I want to I, I know we're <laughs> I'm taking up a lot of your time, Keith, but there there's a, just a few things I, I want to cover still, and I, I think Pete Dye is a great uh, jumping in point to speak about his wife Alice Dye and. Not only her influence and, and what you know what she meant to Pete and to golf at large, um, but I, I also want to point out you have a whole section in, in your book about women in in golf, and you know you talk about Ida Elizabeth Gilbert and Marion Hollands and you know some of these figures that have been hugely hugely important. Uh, I, I was just wondering if you can kind of touch on Alice Dye's, you know. What made her such an important figure? And then, you know, going back some years, I, I think Marion Hollins is fascinating and, and I love her story. I was wondering if you could kind of touch upon that as well.
1: Yeah, that, that whole chapter was, uh, I thought about the whole time about mixing um, that history in with the rest of the book, which does happen, uh, obviously. But there was no doubt in my mind once I started doing the research that it needed its own chapter. Because the story that wouldn't be told if it was mixed in with the, the decades um, was the fact that the high points of design, both, you know, leading up to and the golden age and this new era of golf architecture, women are at the fo- forefront of the golf architecture industry uh, at the high points. And they're not there when golf, when golf architecture is bad. <laughs> and I don't think that's yeah. a coincidence. It's just, yeah. It just can't be. And it's too obvious when you read that chapter. And Alice Dye is very much, you know, she's there with Pete. She's the Renaissance woman. She's um, she's actually the better golfer of the two by far. Um, yeah. <laughs> nine-time winner of the Indiana Women's Amateur Championship. Um, you know, she was she was a um, a, a very um, determined woman, and having you know a wife that's like that, a mother. And a mother-in-law, who are very driven women, um, I couldn't have that history just mixed in with the rest. It had to stand alone. And Alice, you know, Alice and Marion Hollins were major reasons for that. You know, Alice fought her entire life to make courses more accessible for women, um, and she usually gets that as her major call- calling card. And she with. It was- No disrespect, she did that to herself, too. Whenever you see her, you know, um, whenever she was brought up to give a presentation or talk, that's what she would be talking about. She was the first lady of golf architecture. You know, And we think of first lady, we think, you know, the president up front and the first lady kind of behind. But she was very much right there beside her husband. And that's that's no more evident than if you look at Pete's most famous courses. Alice helped co-design um, you know, the Ocean Course, PGA West, Harbortown Golf Links, Crooked Stick, Casa de Campo, among others. That list is like Pete Dye's uh, top courses. I don't think it's a coincidence that she's there, actively involved with those, uh, with those courses, um, and right there beside her husband. You know, she's, she's credited with creating the 17th hole at Sawgrass, the Island Green. You know, they, they started digging it out to get fill for elsewhere um, on the site, you know, because they're building up a swamp, essentially. And, you know, Pete's like, how are we going to fill this thing? It's massive. Alice is just like, why well, fill it? Let's just leave it, <laughs> yeah. you know, common sense. Um, and that's very much who she was. And it, you know, that history needs to be, people need to know that history. And you know she's she's not the first woman to do it there's numerous others, and they're all laid out in that chapter and Marion hollins is, pro, is is significant in a different way because not only is she a, a you know a pioneer for women's golf uh, with her playing ability, but she gets the uh, distinction of being the first female golf course developer uh the first one of with enough wealth um to benefit the game and she does this so perfectly i mean her first course is a woman's only golf course you know she's a member at a course the men the membership mostly men decide they don't want women anymore and they kick the women out so what does she do find another sport nope you know she hires Devro emmett with help from uh cb mcdonald and seth rayner and builds the women's national golf and tennis club And not only does she does that, she doesn't sit in the wings and, you know, wait for Devereaux to give her her golf course. She travels to the UK, uh, provides hole drawings to Emmett, and also calculates the average driving distances for herself and her women, her, her friends, and provides these to Emmett to use in his design. So very active in the design of the golf course. And, you know, the, and that experience clearly shows because she then moves on to Cypress Point and assists with, with there, um, you know, initially with, it's a Seth Rayner layout. He passes away. Um, Alistair McKenzie is hired and she develops this relationship with him eventually to the point where she's actually asked later in life to visit Augusta on behalf of McKenzie as an associate, a McKenzie associate. Of his firm. You know, that's a huge nod of the cap, a huge uh, uh, sign of respect. Uh, and their friendship obviously continued because she goes on to um, develop Pasta Tiempo and hires Mackenzie um, again for that project.
0: Yeah, it, it's, it's such a. I, I, I love that chapter. Um, if you don't mind, I'd love to just ask you a couple questions about um, individual. Architects, uh, and, and my first question is: you know, I, I think most folks uh, know the name Alistair McKenzie. I, I think probably most folks are aware of uh, CB McDonald, uh, Seth Raynor. You know, some of these guys from the early 20th century uh, who who still have uh, who still have you know just a ton of renown. I, I my, my question to you, Keith, is. In your opinion, who's somebody that should have more renown today than perhaps they do in, in kind of the public's, you know, in, in the public's mind?
1: Um, as far as to their, you know, contribution to golf, Harry Colt, um, having I did an exchange in my undergrad over to the over to Oxford for four months. Um, and you can't spend any time in Oxford and the surrounding area without truly understanding the impact of Harry Colt. Um, being Canadian here, as I said, our um, two founding courses really that you know, 1912 and then 1914, our Toronto Golf Club and Hamilton Golf and Country Club, two Harry Colt courses that a young Stanley Thompson was waiting in the wings watching um, Colt do what he did best. And clearly pushed Thompson into the um, the sphere of golf course architecture you know it 's no coincidence that he he enrolls in school between those two projects to study to be a golf architect um, you've got Colt coming to the to the u s uh, prior you know uh, prior to World War one and helping lay out and uh, advise on pine Valley. Uh, he then goes up to uh, Chicago area at Old Elm and leaves plans and drawings and detailed notes uh, uh, with uh, and and meets with and talks with and sort of probably, you know, educates uh, a young Donald Ross who's working down at Pinehurst, but is then comes up there to construct Old Elm on behalf of Colt. Um, so you've got this huge mentorship. And then in the UK, um, you know, Colt, Colt, at one of McKenzie's, at McKenzie's real first course, um, Colt comes over and basically signs off on, on uh, McKenzie's work, his ideas, uh, allowing him to basically get into golf architecture uh, and later partners McKenzie. Uh, another one of Colt's partners, who, and McKenzie then goes to, you know, obviously Australia, founds golf course architecture really there, it, it existed before. It really gives it the, the look of Australian golf that we know now, um, even though he has you know, his, his representatives there who, who build it for him. Um, and then you've got another um, cult disciple, partner, whatever you want to call it, in uh, Charles Hugh Allison, who goes to Japan and defines, I mean, they still call bonkers Allisons in Japan. Um, he, defi- he defined golf there, and same thing in like, places like South Africa. Um, so the influence of Colt on the world is profound and it's amazing how in North America, we just don't get that. We don't make that connection. Um, you know, the same could be said over in the UK for James Braid after World War II, he basically put the country back together. You know, we, we often overlook at, you know, we hear about the damage of air raids on, you know, the Germans flying over and dropping bombs on Britain. And what that damage did to the cities, what we don't realize is that a lot of the um, the military, um, uh, you know, uh, actual bases used golf courses as um, basically it was the only room they had because Britain's pretty dense. They used a lot of these golf courses either training grounds or uh, storage areas, or so they were prime targets, and a lot of them got you know. Um, a lot of them got wrecked. And especially if these, these planes were coming in, making that, you know, crossing the channel, uh, if they ran out of fuel, they dropped their bombs the second they hit the coastline. So they'd have enough to get back or land or do whatever. So um, it always it always just didn't, the impacts weren't always on the cities and the Gulf itself was affected as well. And we see that sort of um, repair work done by Braid. Um, and a U.S. example to me, somebody that's always uh, overrated. He's looked at as sometimes even just an associate of Mackenzie is Perry Maxwell. Um, Sorry,
0: you said overrated,
1: or did, underrated? I'm guessing you mean underrated yeah, or def- overlooked. overlooked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, definitely not overrated. Um, Maxwell, you know, Prairie Dunes, Old Town Club, which is remarkable. You know, everybody most of your listeners will know Bill Coor and love the work of Coor Crenshaw. Well, um, Bill Coor went to um, Wait Forest. They play their golf at Old Town Club, a Prairie Maxwell layout. Uh, That was hugely influential on on Bill. And that's probably why they, they consulted at Prairie Dunes and restored that course later in life. Uh, and and restored Old Town club bill has a huge appreciation for Perry Maxwell his routings are incredible uh, this incredible and his greens are works of art uh, they truly are uh, they were known you know he's he's known for the maxwell roles in his greens because there's all these sort of little subtleties in his greens that you know it it does not they could not be created with a bulldozer. They're just, you know, unless you're like a Rod Whitman, um, <laughs> uh, it's they're just so subtle and perfection. They look like they've always been there. They fit with the landscapes, um, you know. He's he's just somebody that doesn't get enough credit.
0: Yeah. Okay, I want to ask you about one more person, and it's we just, and I say we, no laying up, just had the occasion we were traveling through the Carolinas. And I got to play uh, two Mike Strant's courses, uh, Caledonia and also Tobacco Road, which I think is probably his most uh, renowned course just because of, you know, <laughs> I, I think when you say Tobacco Road to people, the, the reaction is just uh, people, it's like, oh, it, it's just like uh, unlike a lot of courses anywhere else. Um, and, and so you have a chapter on, on Mike. And I, I'm just wondering, did, did you know Mike personally? And where does, like, where does he fit in with all these other architects? It, it seems like he is a, a bit eccentric. It seems like he's also kind of a bit of a genius. What, what I
1: describe Mike for listeners. Uh, definitely a genius. Um, I would, I wish I knew, I wish I had known Mike Strantz. um, you know, he was taken for taken taken from us much too early. His cancer was tragic. I think golf architecture and golf lost a lot because of that. Um, you know, Tobacco Road is it's polarizing. There's no other way to say it. Like people love it or they hate it. I've never met anybody that's in between. <laughs> yeah, nobody's and, like eh, it was okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> no, nobody does that. I mean, they either go that was the coolest thing I've ever seen, or I basically what they're saying is I didn't get it, you know? Um, and I think that's fabulous. You know, he is, it shows his influence from McKenzie. Um, McKenzie always said, if a, you know, K- McKenzie was frustrated when Cypress point opened because nobody uh, had an issue with it. Everybody loved it. Um, and he thought that was, he, he must've messed something up because a golf course, any art form worth its weight, um, you know, worth, Worth looking at is um, is polarizing. Some people should not get it at first because that means there's depth to it, and um, Tobacco Road is very much that. Um, you can you can see. So it's not just Tobacco Road is not just a McKenzie or a um, a Prairie Maxwell. It's not subtle. Um, it's McKenzie taken to eleven, and where that comes from is. Strantz is an artist, but he's also very much influenced by Fazio, Tom Fazio. Um, Strantz started his career with Fazio and built several courses for him, and you can see that in his work. You can see that in the way the site is drained to catch basins. You know, if you play Tobacco Road, a lot of the it doesn't drain into the bunkers, and you know, a sandy site like that, it very much could have it could have been surface drained. But there's sort of principles going on with how Fazio designed and built courses. This sort of uh, painterly way of designing golf um, that visually, when you step on the tee, there's a lot going on, and it's engaging. It makes you think. But where Strantz takes that to a different level, in my in my opinion, than Fazio, is his implementation of the strategies. You know, he takes these angles and. They're just so. They're more severe. If anybody, you know, Pete Dye is known for his angles uh, of play. Strance is there, if not even a little bit crazier. You know, they're even more striking, <laughs> which is yeah. just remarkable. And what that leads to is an exceptional match play course. And that's the thing that gets over you know, overlooked. He was not building for your stroke play event to go out and you record a score because you're going to flirt with lines out there and you could make you could make a 2 you could make an 8 you know he didn't really care as long as uh you under, you know as long as the the strategies he had were having the effect he wanted and that was you know there's bunkers out there they you know they feel like they're 30 feet deep at tobacco road and you know that that's remarkable he's he's taking these strategies and the impacts of them to the limit and you know I, I i've heard him say there's a youtube video out there an interview with him that uh, you know your listeners should definitely check out you know just just search mike strantz um there's a few videos of him and one of them he talks about sort of his uh design philosophy and he talks about uh designing a golf course like a roller coaster where there's there's definitely breather holes there's holes that may look more complicated than they are. Everything's still a work of art. You know, there's a painting he's trying to uh, to get out there into the landscape. But there's definitely easier holes, and then there's holes that will punch you right in the teeth. You know, and he talks about this sort of idea of the roller coaster, the ebb and flow of golf. And he's, that's not original. He's getting those from the masters. You know, Mackenzie Colt, he, he was one of, the f- one of the first guys that I'd seen um, from that era to talk about that stuff, to talk about the old ways. Uh, you know, Tom Doak was doing it, but he wasn't getting, his his work was, you know, very much understated. And whereas uh, Strance's work was right in your face and it couldn't be ignored. So it got the covers of the magazines, um, which I think was really good for golf because what he did, he doesn't get enough credit for it. Um, he helped push people, he helped get people off of where golf was uh this stroke play type you know just obsession and direct people back to some of the golden age principles allowing for the dokes and the bill cores of the world uh to come up at the same time even though they started before him and were getting some credit um but really brought them in allowed them to get more of the spotlight
0: yeah i gosh i love that and, and i'll also add on if if any listeners uh, the golfer's journal just had an excellent um, podcast and, and whole thing on on Mike strands I believe Jay Ravel was uh, was instrumental in that so yeah there, there's a lot of there's a lot of cool stuff out there um, with with Mike uh, I, I love hearing you talk about tobacco it makes me want to go back and, and play <laughs> it now after yeah. after hearing you know after reading about Mike and, and after hearing you talk about it as well um, well Keith I, I you know, I, we didn't even get to you. You have a whole section on on golf authors. You have a whole section on on visionaries. You know, guys like George Crump at Pine Valley, Mike Kaiser at at Bandon, um, and and certainly others. It's it's just I, I can't I can't stress enough. I feel like we we've you know just lightly touched on a lot of this, uh, but but it's it's all in the book and. I, I do want to just stress again to people how approachable your book is. It, it's it's a book where, you know, you can pick it up and you can read about, you know, a, a few decades and, and then you can put it back down or you can pick it up and read about a few architects and put it back down. Uh, it, it's just something that is, is awesome to have nearby again, as maybe as, as you're watching golf. So, um, I, I just want to, my last question to you getting, getting you out is I know you mentioned the short course at, at Cabot that will be opening in, in 2020. Is that correct? And is, are there any other projects that are, are due to open soon that you're working on?
1: Um, yeah, the, the short course is definitely one that, um, you know, people should be looking for if you, if you haven't visited Cabot before, or if you're looking to visit again, um, July, uh, sometime in July this year, they're going to set the uh, the opening for the short course, and it's it's awesome. We've got it's a ten hole layout, par threes, uh, ranging from eighty yards all the way up to two hundred and thirty. Um, you know, it's not a pitch and putt yet. There's there's forward tees there where there's no force carries. If you're bringing your kids or wife or um, you know a husband that doesn't play. Um, you could still go around out there and have a great time. Uh, the ground game, just like everything we've done at Cabot, is ever-present. Um, the variety of pins and some really interesting greens that, you know, you, you're not going to get tired even if, you, even if the weather sucks. Um, you know, most people still go out and play, but if it's, you know, gale force winds, you can still play our course. Uh, yeah. and it's going to be something that's going to, I think, really round out the offerings there at Cabot. And um, is is truly interesting. So that's opening this summer. We we did a green renovation at Fredericton Golf Club. Um, you know, one of the one of the oldest clubs actually in uh, in Canada. It's probably I think it's uh, one of the oldest clubs in uh, New Brunswick, next to the Algonquin that we did. Um, we redid four greens there last year. Those will be opening um, sometime this spring. Uh, obviously, both both courses there are dependent on our our winters and uh, when spring actually comes but we're hoping to continue work there at Fredericton we'll see where that goes Um, and we are currently doing a master plan at Brantford we're just in the final stages of uh, figuring out sort of budgeting and scheduling of the course and Brantford um, Golf and Country Club is the fourth oldest in North America the club so we we like our history we like our old architecture um but uh you know obviously clearly me being the historian uh we like to keep our uh um our fingers in some of those uh classic layouts. And um yeah, we're hoping to do a lot more. Rod and I are hoping to do a lot more work here with Dave Axlin in the future. Um we're looking at some new builds. We're uh, actually flying to uh BC, British Columbia on Monday to meet with Rod. We're looking at a project there. We've got uh, a couple tentative projects in Alberta, um, couple, a couple, a potential 36-hole build in uh, Ontario here, and we've also got a potential project in uh, in France and one in Ireland. And we'll see if, uh, you know, I can't really get into too many details on those because until we until we have a contract signed uh, and yeah, uh, budget sure. determined, <laughs> they're really all just fantasy projects, uh, and really they are fantasy jobs, we really hope uh, – some of these start to come through and, uh, you know, working with Dave more in the, here in the future, we're hoping to do some more work in the U.S. So, um, you know, we've got uh, it, the, the future's bright. And then I'm actually scheduled um, right after the new year. I'm going to be uh, going to Japan for uh, three months. Uh, I'm going to be helping an architect named uh, Paul Jansen there on a, a, a course in the, the south end uh of uh of the island and uh, i'm really looking forward to that i've been itching to get to uh, japan for a long time like i said uh charles allison's uh influence over there was epic and there's some pretty incredible layouts
0: yeah well fantastic it sounds like it it sounds like things will be busy for you in in a really good way so uh keith thank you so much The, the book again is the evolution of golf course design it's uh, Tell folks, what, what's the best way, if, if they want to get a copy, what's the best way to get, pick one up?
1: Well, if, uh, if you live in the U.S., Amazon.com, uh, just search for either my name, Keith Cutten, C-U-T-T-E-N, and the Evolution of Golf Course Design. Uh, it'll pop right up, and uh, I've got about 1,000 books left there uh, pre- and post-holidays, but once they're gone, they're gone. That's the last of uh, my first edition print. And I'm still not sure whether or not there'll be more printed after there. It'll just depend on uh, uh, popularity and my time, I guess. Um, and if, you, if you're based in Canada or Mexico or South America or Europe or uh, Britain, I mean, I've, I've sold books in Australia, all around the world. Um, if people visit uh, my website, cuttengolf.com, that's C-U-T-T-E-N, uh golf.com um you'll see a spot there where there's availability to purchase books
0: fantastic uh yeah it's it's you know this time of year i think everybody's looking for gift ideas and certainly if there's a golfer in your life, or if you know if you need to give folks ideas for what to get you as a golfer, uh, th- this would make uh, an excellent gift. So, Keith, thank you so much. I-, I really appreciate it, and best of luck with all all the work in in the new year.
1: Thank you, Randy. I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, hope to see you again soon.